Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin, and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. We have a love for true crime and the unsolved. If you don't remember Unsolved Mysteries, we forgive you, but you don't have to know to get into our show. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, or just stories about weird shit like Bigfoot, this is your podcast. The stories we cover range from totally ridiculous to truly heartbreaking. We do detailed research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired, then drink some wine and give you the latest updates on every case. We talk about stories that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolve Mysteries podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. This is a Scream Queen production. Earthlings, welcome to So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter, and this is the second fucking time I'm recording this episode. Yeah, so I don't know what happened. This has never happened to me before. I always check my audio before I really get going, but somewhere the, I don't know, is it Mercury retrograde? I don't keep up with that shit, but somewhere something went wrong, and when I listened back to the episode to do my kind of pre-editing before I send it to my editor. There was this terrible feedback. It was very muffled. It sounded like I was inside a tin can. It killed my soul. It ruined my day. I had to close the laptop, walk away, and we're going to try again. On the plus side, not a plus for me necessarily, because I don't have time for this shit, but a plus for you guys is that maybe since this is the second time I'm doing this, I won't mispronounce so many words. Let's see. Don't hold your breath, though. Uh, Happy True Crime Tuesday. Happy Taco Tuesday. All of that stuff. Today's episode, I'm a little worried about it, to be honest. I don't even know why I picked it. Actually, I do know why I picked it, and I'll explain that later on. Um, But this is a really big case, and a lot of people know a lot about it, so I guarantee you I'm going to get shit wrong, and people are going to want to tell me about it, because they always do. This is why I like doing stories that people have never heard of, because if I get something wrong, nobody knows except for me. Well, Except for last week when I said that Benton Harbor was in southeast Michigan when it's definitely in southwest Michigan, which I know that I've been there. I just misspoke and I didn't catch it. So let me let you guys in on a little secret. It is really, really hard to edit your own work, whether it's written or spoken, as I have now found out, because you hear or read what you meant, not what you actually said. So 
It doesn't matter how many times you listen or how many times you proofread, you're always going to see what you meant, not what actually came out. And that's why I fuck up so much. FYI. Now that we've cleared that up, let's all chillax with a plate of tacos, maybe a little bit of chips and queso, because it's time for another dead time story. Picture it. March 2nd, 1932. 89 years ago today, the same nine bold print letters are splashed across the front page of every newspaper in the country. It's a household name. Everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. Except this time, the headline wasn't about a record-breaking accomplishment or a noteworthy achievement. No, from this day on, the name that had been synonymous with an all-American success story became known for something else entirely. An American tragedy. Because 89 years ago today, the world woke up to the news that the infant son of famed aviator Charles Lindbergh had been kidnapped, stolen from his own bed, in his own home, with his entire family downstairs, none the wiser. Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born on February 4, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan, to Charles August and Evangeline Lodgeland Lindbergh. It's a lot of L's. I just like to call her L. Detroit, though, was not Charles's home, and Lindbergh was not even his real name. Confused? Let's rewind this mixtape a bit, and I will explain. Be kind. Rewind. Let's dig in to a bit of 19th century scandal, shall we? Vintage scandal is always the best kind, darling. I, okay, listen, (laughs) it's early, I'm tired, I'm still pissed off that my recording yesterday got fucked up, so I'm in a mood and today's about to be real silly and if I'm on your nerves, you might want to turn me off now because I just don't see this situation improving for us. It's only going to get worse from here, folks. So, Charles Lindbergh I the father of the famous Charles Lindbergh and the grandfather of the kidnapped Charles Lindbergh, was actually born Carl Manson. How ironic that both last names became notoriously linked with true crime. Anyway, Charles I, formerly Carl, was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1859 to waitress Louisa Carlin, the 19-year-old mistress of Swedish politician Ola Manson. Problem was, Ola was already married, and he and his wife had seven children together. 1859 didn't go so well for Ola. Not only did his teenage mistress give birth to his eighth child, but he was also accused of bribery and embezzlement at the bank where he worked. So naturally, he pieced right on out of Sweden with his little mistress, who was 30 years younger than him, and their new baby, leaving behind his wife and their seven kids and a terrible reputation. When they arrived in the New World, they settled in Melrose, Minnesota and changed their names. Ola Manson became August Lindbergh, and his infant son Carl Manson became Charles August Lindbergh. Oh my God. I literally just realized this. Like I wrote this and I researched it, but I just realized like his first name, they changed it to Charles. But if they didn't change his last name, then his name would have been Charles Manson too. 
<laughs> so, so yeah, Lindbergh, uh, at least in the instance of this family, is a made-up name born out of scandal, kind of like the Steppenwolves from a couple episodes back. Manson, obviously, not a much better last name. We'll just call them, we're just going to call them the original Manson family. How about that? So once in the States, August Lindbergh became a farmer and a blacksmith, and he and Louisa went on to have six more children together. He really liked that number, that seven kids thing, I guess. Karma did come for August eventually, though. In 1861, Old Boy lost an arm in a sawmill accident, which then made both blacksmithing and farming very difficult for him. In 1865, his wife back in Sweden died, leaving him free to marry Louisa, which he still didn't do for another 20 years in 1885 when he was 77 and she was 43. Gross. August got back into politics after sawing off his own arm, and he eventually served as a postmaster, village recorder, town clerk, and even justice of the peace. He died in Little Falls, Minnesota on April 22nd, 1921, at the age of 85. Little Falls is kind of smack dab, it, smack dab, smack dab. Little Falls is kind of smack dab in the middle of Minnesota. And it's one of the oldest European cities. No, oh my gosh, I need to slow down. It is one of the oldest European American cities in the state of Minnesota. There goes my dog. Hang on, y'all. You want out of here? Are you embarrassed by me? Today, it has less than 10,000 people. So back in the 1800s, it probably had like 10 people, and they were all members of the Manson family. Little Falls is where Charles Lindbergh I, formerly Carl Manson, grew up. And it's where he met and fell in love with Mary LaFond, a local girl eight years his junior. But first, Charles I left Minnesota to attend law school at the University of Michigan. He graduated in 1883, which means he was at U of M at the same time as your favorite serial killer and mine, Mr. H.H. Holmes. I wonder if they were friends. I bet you they fucking were. After he graduated, Charles I went back to Little Falls and he opened a law practice. In 1887, he and Mary LaFond got married and had their first child, a daughter by the name of Lillian. Three years later, their second daughter, Edith, was born, but sadly, Edith died when she was just a year old. And the following year, in 1892, Charles and Mary welcomed their third daughter, Eva. In 1898, when the Lindbergh girls were 11 and 6, 30-year-old Mary died during a surgery that she underwent to have an abdominal tumor removed, leaving 39-year-old Charles a widower with two young girls to raise. He needed to remarry, obviously, because single dads were not a thing in the 1800s, and so he remarried pretty quickly, just a few years after Mary died. In 1901, 42-year-old Charles married 25-year-old Michigan gal Evangeline Lodge Land, a high school chemistry teacher. Something you need to know about Miss Land? Girlfriend was fancy. She was born in Detroit on May 29, 1876 to Dr. Charles Land and Evangeline Lodge Land I. 
Evangeline's father was a dentist, not just a dentist, but the dentist who invented porcelain and gold crowns, not for your head, but for your teeth, obviously. So he was a dentist. One of her dad's brothers, her uncle John, ran a cider mill. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, That's a really bad local joke. So we've got a cider mill here in St. John's, which is not too far from Lansing, and it's called Uncle John's Cider Mill. And it's like a big, it's a staple. They've got wine now, so parents like to go. um, But they do, you know, cider and donuts and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that was my really bad joke. Because Evangeline's Uncle John was actually the 51st, 54th, and 56th mayor of the city of Detroit. Her uncle on the other side of the family, her mom's brother, was Dr. Edwin Lodge, and he was a prominent physician in the area. So the Lodges and the Lands were some hoity-toity important people. Evangeline attended Miss Liggett's private school for girls. Like, what? That sounds to me like the name of a book series, a haunted book series, or like a a Netflix show for preteens. Miss Liggett's Private School for Girls. Uh, Sorry, again, it's me. It's not you. So Evangeline graduated from Detroit Central High School. She then went on to the University of Michigan, and she got herself a chemistry degree during a time when most women didn't go to college. Your mom goes to college. Oh, I'm annoying myself now, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to stop. Literally, I don't know what I need. I don't drink coffee, so that won't save me, but here we are. Okay. Anyway, Evangeline got a chemistry degree when women weren't really going to college. A lot of cases, they weren't allowed at certain colleges, so shitty. She graduated in 1899 uh, when women certainly didn't work in the field of science. The nerve. Nope. I'm not done yet, I guess. So she had a hard time finding a job as a chemistry teacher, which resulted in her having to leave the home she knew and loved to find work in her field. She took a position as a high school chemistry teacher in Little Falls, Minnesota. Minnesota. Stop it, Jennifer. Two years later, in 1901, the 25-year-old teacher met and fell in love with 42-year-old widower and the father of two young girls, Charles Lindbergh, a lawyer, and coincidentally, a fellow U of M grad. The two married that same year. So Evangeline is a prestigious high school teacher shattering glass ceilings all over the 19th century. Charles is a successful lawyer with his own practice. They build a house on the river, and on February 4th, 1902, they welcome their first and only child together, a son they named Charles Augustus Lindbergh. Because his middle name was different from his dad's, he wasn't technically a junior, and they didn't make that part of his name, so that's why I'm referring to them as Charles I and Charles II instead of Charles Sr. and Jr. Okay? Okay. While Charles grew up in Little Falls, he was actually born in his mama's hometown of Detroit. When it was time for her to give birth, Evangeline traveled the 800 miles from Little Falls to Detroit so that her uncle, who I'm assuming slash hoping was an obstetrician, did they even have obstetricians in 1902? Probably not. 
so she went home so that her uncle could deliver her bouncing baby boy at her parents' home, a turreted three-story Romanesque revival-style house that was located at 1120 West Forest Avenue in Detroit near the Wayne State University campus. No, the house is not still there, so do not bother writing down the address to try to go creeping. It's gone. And when I say bouncing baby boy, Charles weighed nine and a half pounds at birth, so he was super bouncy. (laughs) Not that you should ever bounce a baby, but you know what I mean. So people often say that Charles Lindbergh was from Detroit, and by people, I mean me, because I used to tell everyone that before I actually researched what the hell I was talking about, but he was not from Detroit. He was just born there, and his mother's prominent family of doctors and politicians called it home, so he visited often. He once said during an interview, I never spent a dull day in Detroit. Charles lived on that big house on the river back in Little Falls, Minnesota, with his parents and his two older half-sisters. But it wasn't all smooth sailing in the Lindbergh household. Evangeline did not get along with her stepdaughters at all. Things were so bad that the girls eventually moved away. Where'd they go? I don't know. I only had so much time for research friends, and we're still just in the prequel right now. Before long, Evangeline wasn't getting along with her husband either. From 1907 to 1917, Charles I served as a U.S. congressman, and he was so concerned about his image that he spent several years just kind of doing whatever he had to do to keep Evangeline placated even though they were miserable and they hated each other, including sending away his own daughters to try to make her happy. He worried that a divorce, something that Evangeline threatened him with often, would ruin his reputation and his political standing. So they stuck it out longer than they probably should have. In 1909, when little Charles was seven, he and Evangeline packed their shit and left Charles the first. Okay, wait. No, yeah, that's right. I just worded that sentence wrong because... I put him first, so it makes it sound like it was a seven-year-old little boy's decision to pack his shit and leave home. But no, I'm sure that Evangeline was behind that decision, and she just took Charles with her. Um, So they moved out, although Evangeline and Charles I didn't officially separate until 1918, the same year that their son graduated from Little Falls High School. So apparently it was more acceptable for a politician to get a divorce once his children were grown and out of the house. Maybe? I don't know. What I do know, friends, is that this brings us to the meat and potatoes of our story, the life and times of Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Michigan-born, Minnesota-raised. Minnesota. I feel like I say that so Michigan, or do I say it Minnesota? I don't know, but I definitely say it with my northern accent. After high school, Charles went to the University of Wisconsin to study engineering. Soon, Charles's interest in mechanics gave way to an obsession with aviation. Airplanes were still a pretty new thing. The first successful flight occurred the year after Charles was born, so it was still exciting. Humans were in the sky. Charles left college and went to the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation in Lincoln, where he learned to fly. After that, he became a barnstormer, basically an evil Knievel of the sky. 
He traveled around the country and performed daredevil stunts at fairs, including wing walking, parachuting, and jumping from plane to plane midair. Listen, I did not take my first conscious flight until I was in my 30s. And by that, I mean I flew once when I was a baby, but I wasn't even a year old yet, so I don't remember it at all. Uh, But my first flight that exists in my consciousness, I was 30 years old. I was terrified. I was drugged up. I thought I was going to have a heart attack just waiting for the plane. I'm still a nervous flyer today. Well, I'm not a flyer at all. Thank you, COVID. But uh, once travel becomes a thing again, I'm very nervous. I have to take a Xanax. I'm stressed. It's, I could, I don't know. I don't know if I could ever fly over the ocean. I know that sounds really silly because like if your plane crashes, you're fucked no matter what. But uh, I just... I don't know. I'm terrified of flying over the ocean. Maybe, uh, no, we're not going to psychoanalyze my weird idiosyncrasies right now. We're just going to keep it moving with this story about the Lindberghs. So, not surprisingly, Charles became insanely popular as a stuntman. He was young. He was in his late teens, early 20s. He was tall. He was 6'3", very fit. He had that kind of chiseled look. He had a dimpled chin and everything. Most photos of him are in black and white because the world was in black and white back then, but I have seen some that have been colorized. I'm not sure how accurately. And in those ones, he's got, you know, fair skin, bright blue eyes, and kind of reddish hair. Handsome, handsome guy. He became so successful that he actually bought his own plane, and his biggest fan was his mama. After Charles left the nest, Evangeline moved back to Detroit and got a job teaching chemistry at Cass Tech, where she would work for the next 20 years. She attended as many of Charles's barnstorming shows as she could. I could never watch my child do some shit like that, but we've been over my anxiety many times here over the past few years. Charles did the barnstorming thing for about two years, and then in 1924, he enlisted in the United States Army and trained as an Army Air Service Reserve pilot. In 1925, he graduated from the Army's flight training school as the best pilot in his class. Following his time in the service, Charles was hired by the Robertson Aircraft Corporation of St. Louis, which hired him to fly mail between St. Louis and Chicago daily. His mother often accompanied accompanied his mother often accompanied him on his flights she would sit on mail sacks beside him in the cockpit and he quickly earned a reputation as a capable and dependable pilot even though he got into and survived obviously four separate plane crashes between his time in the army and his work as an airmail pilot how strange that none of his near-death experiences came during his time as a barnstormer, just when he was out there trying to do normal shit. Unlike most of us who are still trying to figure ourselves out well into our 40s, Charles discovered his passion young and he devoted himself fully to the aviation world. In 1927, he decided to throw his hat in the ring for the Ortigue Prize. In 1919, New York City hotel owner Raymond Ortigue offered $25,000 to the first aviator that was able to fly nonstop from New York to Paris. In today's money, that would be over $375,000, so that is a lot of money. 
Over the years, several pilots were killed or seriously injured competing for the Ortigue Prize, and no one was successful. In 1927, eight years after the contest began, Charles Lindbergh was like, hey, I can do this. He was confident that with the right plane, he would be the one to complete the flight. So he lobbied a group of businessmen in St. Louis to finance the construction of the plane. And with Lindbergh's help, the Ryan Aeronautical Company out of San Diego designed and constructed constructed a modified plane with an extended wingspan and extra fuel tanks. Many items typically included in an airplane that were not completely necessary were removed to lighten the load. The more the plane weighed, the quicker it would burn through fuel, um, which was the problem that all of Lindbergh's predecessors had had. So while these guys were putting, you know, additional engines and all this extra equipment in for this long, perilous flight, Charles's theory was, let's take it all out, take everything out, just me, the engine, some gas, let's fucking go. So they removed the radio, the parachute. (laughs) They removed a parachute from an airplane. You're killing me, Charlie. They removed the gas gauges, the navigation lights, among other things. Charles designed his own special lightweight boots. He replaced his heavy pilot's chair with a wicker chair. And he took a pair of scissors to his maps to remove the parts of the maps that he didn't need. That's how serious he was about lightening his load. Every ounce counted. The plane, which Lindbergh named the Spirit of St. Louis to honor his investors, was finished on April 28, 1927, and Lindbergh's flight from New York to Paris was scheduled for May 20th. Two weeks before the flight, Lindbergh and his crew got word that French pilots Charles Nungesser and Francois Collie had set sail from Paris bound for New York. They, too, had their eye on the Ortigue Prize. It seemed that all of Lindbergh's hard work had been for nothing. Somebody was going to beat him to it. But Nungesser and Collie never made it to New York. Their plane, the Le Sau Blanc, I'm sorry, I don't speak French. I don't, I just, I didn't take French. I took Spanish, so I'm sorry. The plane whose name I can't pronounce disappeared somewhere over the Atlantic and was never found. One might think that such an event would make Lindbergh rethink his plans, but one would be wrong. At 7.52 a.m. on May 20th, 1927, the Spirit of St. Louis raced down the runway at Roosevelt Airfield in Garden City, New York, and lifted into the air in front of about 500 curious onlookers. 33 and a half hours later, Lindbergh successfully landed at Aeroport Le Bourget in Paris, France, where a crowd of over 150,000 instant fans cheered him, hoisted him onto their shoulders, and hailed him a hero. The young pilot with the dashing good looks instantly became the most famous and beloved man in the world. Here's the thing, though. If, like me, you don't know a ton about Charles Lindbergh, you hear his name and you think, A, the Lindbergh baby, obviously, And two, the first dude to cross the ocean in an airplane, which is a very broad generalization and not accurate at all. But as it turns out, Lindbergh was not even the first person to cross the Atlantic by air. 
at all. He was simply the first single pilot to cross the Atlantic by way of New York to Paris. <laughs> That's a lot of particular details that you've got to throw in there to make it a first. But hey, he had that million-dollar smile, and the world wanted a hero, so he was their guy. However, the flight wasn't all smooth sailing for Lindbergh. Well, it wasn't really sailing at all, right? He wasn't sailing. He was flying. Okay. Between pre-flight prep and the 33 and a half hours in the sky, dude was awake for some 55 hours straight. I mean, I feel like I've been awake that long more than once, but not while trying to fly an airplane. So kudos on that. He told reporters that he would skim the surface of the ocean from time to time so that the ice-cold sea spray would shock his system and help keep him awake. And he did stay awake, but he became delirious and began hallucinating phantom islands and seeing ghosts in planes that spoke to him. He was a mess by the time he landed. But he landed in a country where two celebrated national heroes were still missing at sea after failing to make the same flight Lindbergh had just successfully completed, only in the opposite direction. This fact was not lost on Lindbergh, and one of the first things he did upon arriving in Paris after sleeping for probably at least 24 hours straight was he went to visit the mother of one of those pilots, Charles Nungesser, and she said to Lindbergh, you are a very brave young man. I too have a brave son who I have never ceased to believe is still fighting his way back to civilization. That's sad because, yeah, they never found either of the pilots or any sign of the plane or anything. It just completely disappeared over the Atlantic. Charles won the Ortigue Prize, of course, so he was instantly extremely wealthy. Not that he was bad off before, but now he really had the cheddar. And the Ortigue Prize was the goal the whole time, but the fame turned out to be the bigger prize. Charles was Time Magazine's first ever Man of the Year. He published a book called We. Not we like I'm having fun, but we as in my plane and I. He earned himself a couple new nicknames. They called him the Lone Eagle and Lucky Lindy. There were songs written about him. Every news outlet in the world wanted to interview him. There were speaking engagements, celebrations, parades, parties, parties, parties. Do you guys remember parties? I hate you, COVID. Uh, but most importantly, there was a girl. On December 21st, 1927, at the end of what was definitely the most significant year in 25-year-old Charles Lindbergh's life, he met the shy 21-year-old daughter of his financial advisor during a trip to Mexico City, and the two fell in love. Anne Morrow was born on June 22nd, 1906, so she was just a few years younger than Charles. Nothing too gross. Her father was a politician and a businessman, much like Lindbergh's father, and her mother was a poet and a champion of women's education, much like Lindbergh's mother. Also like the Lindberghs, the Morrows were well-to-do. They spent their summers at Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod. You know, the charmed life, all of that shit. So like Charles, Anne was young and beautiful, and she had an appetite for adventure. The two were married on May 27, 1929, in a private ceremony at the Englewood, New Jersey estate owned by Anne's parents. That same year, Anne, who Charles had been teaching how to fly, took her first solo flight. 
They had money and adventures and more beauty than any couple should have. It was no wonder that they were the most famous and beloved couple in the world. And soon, they also had babies. Their first child, Charles Jr., was born on Anne's 24th birthday, June 22, 1930. Charles Jr. had big curls and big eyes and chubby little cheeks. The world fell just as much in love with the baby as they had with his parents. March 1, 1932 was a Tuesday. It was a cold, rainy, windy night in Hopewell, New Jersey, where the Limbergs were in the final stages of building an isolated estate they called Highfields. 30-year-old Charles, 25-year-old Anne, who was three months pregnant with the couple's second child, 20-month-old Charlie, so like a year and a half, about-ish, a little over, and a small staff of nurses and servants were staying at the house off schedule. The construction wasn't complete yet, so the Limbergs were technically living with Anne's parents, the Morrows, in Englewood, New Jersey during the week, and typically only stayed in Hopewell on the weekends. The two cities are about an hour and 15-minute drive apart today, but that's in 2021 vehicles on 2021 highways. So I imagine it probably took quite a bit longer to get back and forth in 1932. So that weekend, the family traveled to Highfields, and while they were there, baby Charlie came down with a cold and didn't want to make the drive back to Englewood while Charlie was sick, so they found themselves there on a Tuesday for the first time ever. Charlie's nurse, Betty Gow, put him to bed in his nursery on the second floor about 8 o'clock. When she went to check on him a couple hours later, around 10 o'clock, he was gone. Betty at first assumed that maybe Anne or Charles had taken Charlie out of his crib, but she checked with them and they didn't have him. One of the servants called the police while Lindbergh grabbed his gun to search the property. Traces of mud were found on the floor of Charlie's nursery. Footprints were found in the mud under the nursery window. So like the ground was all muddy and there were footprints in the mud on the ground. And there were scratches on the side of the house just to the right of Charlie's nursery window, which investigators believed was caused by the ladder that was used to get into the nursery. So remember, this house was brand new. They were still building it, so there was no damage. There were no scratches, anything like that. So this really stood out to them. A ransom note was found by Charles Lindbergh on the windowsill of the nursery, and it had been written by someone with very shaky hands and very bad English. The note demanded $50,000 for baby Charlie's safe return. That would be almost a million dollars today. There was no blood, no fingerprints, no physical evidence left at the scene. Down the road from the Lindbergh estate, police found the ladder that was used to get to baby Charlie's window. It was a rickety-ass homemade ladder built in this kind of telescoping style, which I heard them explain it, and I couldn't actually picture it until I saw the real thing. But picture one of those little travel umbrellas, the kind that, like, fits in your purse, but then you take it out and you press a button and you, like, whatcha? It... You like fling it and it extends and each new length is like a little bit smaller than the one before it so that it can fit back down inside of it. And then a pin holds the extended pieces in place. Does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe just the word telescoping made sense to you, but it didn't to me because I'm real dumb. 
But that's how this ladder worked. There were three pieces that folded down into each other to be carried easily, but then when extended, it was long enough to reach Charlie's second-story window. On the skinniest part of the ladder, so the part that would have been at the very top, there was a broken rung. The kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh Jr. was the crime of the century. Not since the assassination of President Lincoln and not again until the assassination of JFK had the nation mourned so thoroughly or been so collectively shocked. So the Lindberghs really were like American royalty. And you would think that, you know, the police and the FBI would throw everything they had at the case. And they would have, but Charles Lindbergh wouldn't let them. Typically, you know, the father of a kidnapping victim doesn't have a say in how an investigation is handled, but Charles Lindbergh was a god among men, right? So he was running the show. He refused to allow police to be involved in the ransom negotiations, which were fluid. Five days after Charlie was kidnapped, the Lindberghs received a second ransom note, increasing the demand to $70,000, which would be over $1.3 million in today's money. A third ransom note was received by Lindbergh's attorney two days later, on March 8th, a full week after Charlie disappeared. That same day, a complete stranger by the name of Dr. John Condon of New York published an offer in the Bronx Home News to act as a go-between for the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and said he would pay an additional $1,000 ransom himself. And Charles Lindbergh, who didn't trust the police or the FBI to handle the case properly— was like, a total stranger in charge of my baby's ransom negotiations? Sounds good. The kidnappers also thought it sounded good, and they sent a fourth letter to Lindbergh's attorney, agreeing that Dr. Condon could act as the intermediary. What kind of weird shit? So on March 12th, now 11 days after the kidnapping, Dr. Condon received his very own ransom note. This note said that there was another note between a vacant stone outside a nearby subway station. So Dr. Condon went to the subway station and found the note under the stone. That note directed him to a nearby cemetery, where he met with a man who introduced himself only as John, later to become known as Cemetery John. The two men discussed how the ransom money would be exchanged, and John agreed to provide proof that he and his cohorts really did have baby Charlie. A few days later, on March 16th, Dr. Condon received a baby's sleeping suit delivered to his office. The way this was explained in the article I read, it didn't say that the sleeping suit, or as we call them, pajamas, were the ones that Charlie was wearing when he was taken, or even that they belonged to Charlie, just that it was a baby's sleeping suit, so who knows. On April 1st, a full month after Charlie was kidnapped, a note was delivered to Dr. Condon telling him to have the ransom money ready by the next night. The following night, on April 2nd, Dr. Condon went on another scavenger hunt, find this note under a rock here, that note pinned to a tree there, walk five paces in that direction, until Dr. Condon and Cemetery John were once again face-to-face. The doctor negotiated the ransom amount back down to 50000 At one point, it had gotten up to 100000 and he exchanged the money for a note that allegedly had baby Charlie's location written on it. Cemetery John then disappeared into the night with a wooden box filled with $50,000. 
Now, remember, Charles Lindbergh did not allow the police to be involved in the negotiations at all. So they were not at the park that night to follow Cemetery John when he left. But no worries. Dr. Condon was sure he'd recognize him if he ever saw him again. Good to know. Thanks, dude. The note claimed that Charlie had been taken to Martha's Vineyard and that he would be found on a boat named Nellie. Not surprisingly, a search turned up no evidence of the missing child or of this boat. There was no further contact from the kidnappers after that. On May 12, 1932, 72 days after the most famous baby in the world was kidnapped, a truck driver stopped along the side of the highway near Mount Rose, New Jersey, less than five miles from the Lindbergh estate, to take a leak. He walked about 45 feet into the woods, and he stumbled upon the badly decomposed body of what appeared to be a baby. And since the whole world had been looking for little Charlie Lindbergh for over two months now, he knew who it was. On the left side of Charlie's skull, there was a fracture line that went from the front to the back. On the right side of his skull, there was a small hole behind the right ear. Charles Lindbergh identified his son, who authorities determined had likely been killed on the night that he was kidnapped, and immediately after identifying the body, Charles had his son cremated. Three months later, Anne Morrow Lindbergh gave birth to the couple's second son, who they named John. Not Cemetery John, just John. Because of the skull fractures and that broken ladder that they found, authorities speculated that as one of the kidnappers was descending the ladder with Charlie, the run that he was standing on broke, and he dropped the baby to his death. That while the kidnapping obviously was intentional, little Charlie's death was not. While the search for the kidnappers of the Lindbergh baby continued, the public eye's a fickle one, and fascination with the case waned, until... September 18, 1934, two and a half years after the kidnapping and murder of Charlie Lindbergh. Before I tell you what happened, we do have to back up a bit. So even though Charles Lindbergh essentially froze the police and FBI out of the search for his son, which is crazy to me, they did manage to get their hands on part of the ransom process. They cataloged the serial number for every single bill that was used And they used gold certificates for the ransom, which was a type of currency that was being phased out by the Federal Reserve, so the bills were easy to spot, kind of like a $2 bill. You can pay with them, you can use them, but nobody does. There's not very many of them out there, so when you see one, you notice it because it looks weird, right? So police distributed the list of the serial numbers to banks, stores, and gas stations, but nothing came of it at first. So September 18th is a Tuesday. Just before 1.30 p.m., the assistant manager of the Corn Exchange Bank and Trust Company in New York City alerted authorities that a gold certificate bearing one of the Lindbergh serial numbers had been taken in by a teller a few minutes earlier. The bill had been included in a deposit made by the Warner Quinlan gas station on 127th Street and Lexington Avenue in New York City. You know the place. You've been there. So authorities took the bill to the gas station and they spoke to a clerk who said that three days earlier, on September 15th, a customer had paid for 98 cents worth of gas with a $10 gold certificate. The attendant wasn't sure that the bank would still accept the gold certificate because they were pretty much obsolete by this point. 
So he wrote the customer's license plate number on the bill in case he needed to track him down and get his motherfucking 98 cents. Authorities ran the plates, um, the license plate number that he wrote down, and that led them to a man by the name of Bruno Richard Hauptmann. Hauptmann, who went by his middle name Richard, was a German immigrant who'd been in the States for about 11 years. He was a 32-year-old carpenter with a young wife and an infant son around the same age Charlie Lindbergh was when he was taken. Houtman was arrested and his home was searched. Authorities found a small-caliber pistol, $14,000 of the ransom money, so almost a third of the total amount, and other suspicious items. Dr. Condon identified Houtman as Cemetery John. Experts matched a section of the ladder found at the scene to a floor beam in Houtman's attic. Both the section of the ladder and Houtman's attic floor were made from yellow pine, and the two pieces of lumber were matched up by their wood grain. A handwriting expert determined that all 15 ransom letters had been written by Houtman, and despite the defense's efforts to paint Houtman as an innocent working-class family man, dude had a shady past. In his German hometown of Commons, he was once arrested for breaking into the mayor's house by using a ladder to climb through a second-story window. Once inside, he robbed the family of cash and valuables. Another time, he and an accomplice were arrested for robbing a woman at gunpoint. A woman pushing a baby in a baby carriage. So we've got babies, we've got ladders, we've got money lust, it really kind of seems like a precursor, right? I mean, it's kind of like a map to kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. And then to get to the United States, he escaped jail, he stowed away on a steamship, and he lied his way through customs. So, I mean, do we really even need a trial? Uh, they had one, of course. This is America. The crime of the century led to the trial of the century, which began in Flemington, New Jersey on January 3rd, 1935. Thousands of reporters and curious onlookers descended upon the town. It became such a spectacle that the question was raised early on whether or not Houtman could get a fair trial. But the trial moved forward and it lasted about six weeks. On February 13th, 1935, a jury found Bruno Richard Houtman guilty as charged and they sentenced him to death by electric chair. Unlike nowadays when someone is sentenced to death and then sits there for years and years and decades and decades, Houtman was executed just... Nope. He wasn't executed. Houtman was executed just over a year later on April 3rd, 1936. The end. Case closed. Right? Oh, no. No, no, no. From the beginning, authorities were positive that there were multiple kidnappers. The logistics alone made it almost a guarantee. The Lindbergh estate was still a construction site. It was muddy. It had been raining that night. The ladder used to get to Charlie's window was a rickety contraption made of toothpicks. There had to be someone holding the ladder, someone acting as lookout. And then there was the whole elaborate ransom note plot, the scavenger hunts, and the fact that Houtman only had a third of the money. I mean, who had the rest? This was not a one-man job. There was no way. But who else was involved? One shocking theory that no one would dare to speak aloud until many years later is that Charles Lindbergh himself orchestrated his own son's kidnapping. 
I know. The, the first time I heard this from a customer who came into my bookshop, actually, uh, I was in disbelief. I really didn't know a lot about the case. I just knew the broad strokes, Charles Lindbergh, plain guy, super famous, everybody loved him, had that dimpled chin, had a cute baby, baby got kidnapped and murdered. That was all I knew. So when I was told this theory, it seemed really far-fetched to me. Charles Lindbergh was an American hero. There was no way, right? Well, let me, we're just going to start with the facts and then we'll get a little bit into the theories. Fact. The night Charlie was kidnapped was the first time the Lindberghs had ever been at Highfields on a Tuesday night. They'd only ever stayed on the weekends, but they extended their trip because Charlie was sick. The Morrow Estate, Anne's parents' house where they stayed during the week, was heavily guarded. The Lindbergh Estate, where they never were on Tuesdays, was secluded and unguarded, and only a handful of people knew they were there, which definitely suggests an inside job. It's just way, way too convenient. Fact. The night of the kidnapping, Charles was scheduled to speak at an event in New York City. Charles Lindbergh was many things, and at the top of that list was punctual and dependable. He never missed a scheduled event. He was always on time. He never canceled. But this night, he didn't cancel. He wasn't late. He just didn't show up. He was a no-call, no-show. And so instead of being in New York City when Charlie was taken, he was at home where he would have been able to direct the kidnappers. Fact. Even though everyone in the house was awake during the time Charlie was taken, no one heard a thing. I did read a few articles. I don't know if this is true. Uh, I didn't. It's not like everywhere, but it was in a few different places. It said that Charles allegedly told everyone in the house to leave Charlie alone in his room from 8 to 10 p.m., that he was not to be disturbed, and that he didn't want him coddled. Basically told everybody, put him to bed at eight, let him cry it out for two hours, do not go in that bedroom. And then this was the exact two-hour time frame during which Charlie was taken through a window that had conveniently been left unlocked. So yeah, the kidnappers, kidnappers, the kidnappers not only magically found Charlie's window in the pitch black on the first try, but he had more than one window and they just magically picked the one that was left unlocked. Fact. Multiple members of the household searched Charlie's room when it was first discovered that he was missing. Nobody saw the ransom note. Charles found it when he went back into the room by himself a second time. Fact. When Charlie's nurse Betty Gow told the Limbergs that their son was missing, the first words out of Charles's mouth were, They have stolen our baby. Which, that's a weird thing to say, but also like, hey, Charlie's not in his crib. Oh shit, did he climb out of it? Let's go see. No, he immediately jumped to, they have stolen our baby. I also read, and again, not sure if this part is true because it seems wild, uh, but I read that when Betty and Anne first realized Charlie was gone, they assumed that Charles had taken him out of his room and hidden him as a practical joke which was something that he'd apparently done several weeks before when he hid the baby in a closet for hours and watched as the entire household went into a frenzy looking for him. That's fucked up, but also, like, was that a trial run to kind of see what would happen if he disappeared and what people would do? And That's really, really weird. And also possibly untrue, but maybe true. Who knows? Fact. Authorities questioned all of the employees in both the Lindbergh, 
and Morrow households. So the Lindbergh estate and then the Morrow estate where they lived during the week. Uh, one of those people questioned was Violet Sharp, who was a servant at the Morrow estate. She was in her early 20s, party girl, kind of. She was questioned twice, and she gave inconsistent statements to police. So they went back to question her a third time on June 10th, 1932, and when they got there, she immediately ran up the stairs and drank a bottle of silver polish, which contains cyanide, and she died before she could be questioned again. So this certainly suggests that she knew more than she was willing to admit. Was it something she was willing to die for? Did she have overwhelming guilt? We don't know, because she fucking died. Fact. Charles Lindbergh did irreparable damage to the investigation into his son's kidnapping by refusing to work with the officials. Whether it was intentional as a way to misdirect or out of a genuine distrust of law enforcement's ability to handle the case, his lack of cooperation is one of the primary reasons there are still so many questions today. Fact. Charles Lindbergh identified the badly decomposed body of the toddler, although authorities said there were really no identifiable features because he'd been out there for so long. So basically the police were like, there's no way you can just look at this and say that this is my son, but he was so adamant. Yep, this is absolutely my son. And then before there could even really be a question about it, he immediately had Charlie cremated, which not only destroyed the most important piece of evidence in the case, but also deprived Anne of even a say in how her child's remains were handled. Fact. Following the execution of Bruno Richard Houtman, New Jersey Governor Harold Hoffman declared that he was not satisfied with the results of the investigation. Houtman's wife had given him a solid alibi for the night of the murder, which other witnesses corroborated. Modern technology later proved that the handwriting in the ransom letters did not actually match Houtman's in any way, shape, or form, and the expert that matched wood from the kidnap ladder to the wood from Houtman's attic was a psychopath. I mean, not like technically a psychopath, but listen to this shit. Uh, yeah, so it was the same kind of wood. It was. It was yellow pine. But the wood grain didn't match at all. This is what was actually allowed to be admitted as evidence into a court of law. See these two pieces of the same kind of wood? They don't match up, but let's say that there was a missing piece in the middle, designed like this. Now it forms one flowing pattern, which means it's obviously a match. So literally the, the pieces did not match, so they drew a middle piece to make it match and said this piece exists, it just got cut out and we don't have it. No. Houtman steadfastly maintained his innocence right up until his death. He was offered multiple plea deals. If he would confess or give up his accomplices, his sentence would be converted to life in prison. He refused, saying he couldn't confess to something he didn't do. Soon after the governor announced that he was reopening the investigation, the Lindbergh family jetted off to Europe in the dead of night under assumed names where they lived in exile for three years. Lindbergh claimed that they fled the U.S. for their safety, that they'd been receiving kidnap threats against their three-year-old son, John, but the timing was so suspicious. But why? Why would Charles Lindbergh, the most famous, beloved man in the world, murder his own son, the most famous, beloved baby in the world? 
One of many theories, the one that I actually found most plausible, but don't worry, we'll get to the others too, is that he never intended for Charlie to be harmed, that he orchestrated the kidnapping to explain Charlie's absence and had plans to send him away to be raised anonymously in an institution. But again, why? Well, because Charles Lindbergh was an evil motherfucker. That whole thing about being wary of false idols? This was Charles. Uh, Behind his dashing good looks and his daredevil antics was a racist Nazi sympathizer and a supporter of the eugenics movement. If you listen to the So Dead miniseries, The Serial Killer Chronicles, we talked about eugenics a bit because Dr. Kellogg, the inventor of my favorite thing, modern-day breakfast cereal, was also a supporter of eugenics. Simply put, eugenics was a movement aimed at improving the genetic composition of the human race by scientifically weeding out undesirable traits through selective breeding. This involved identifying and classifying degenerate and unfit individuals based on race, sexuality, mental fitness, financial stability, promiscuity, and disability, and then eradicating them. Not by, like, killing them necessarily, but by preventing them from procreating through forced sterilization. Charles Lindbergh had been deemed a perfect specimen by eugenists. I don't know if that's a word, but that's what we're going to call him. And by Nazis as well. If they had the power to decide who should be sterilized, they also had the power to decide who should spread their seed all over the planet to better the human race. (laughs) That sounds so fucking gross. Lucky Lindy was their number one recruit. And then he fathered a disabled son. Charles Jr. was born with a rickets-like disease. Rickets is a bone disorder caused by a vitamin D deficiency. It results in weak or soft bones in children and can cause bowed legs, stunted growth, bone pain, large forehead, and trouble sleeping. Baby Charlie had bowed legs, an enlarged cranium, skull bones that never fully fused, and hammer toes on his left foot. He took mega doses of vitamin D supplements, and he had a sun lamp beside his crib. Charles Lindbergh, the perfect specimen, the face of the eugenics movement, couldn't let the world find out that he'd sired an imperfect child. He would have done anything to keep that a secret. Maybe not kill his own child, but send him away? Certainly. Charles Lindbergh was neither a good nor a loving father. He saw his children, he and Anne had five more after Charlie, only a few months out of the year. He kept a list of all of their infractions, such as gum chewing and talking out of turn, and he punished them severely for their crimes. Crimes in heavy quotes. It was not uncommon back then for families to institutionalize their disabled children. Charles Lindbergh had the means and the motive to do exactly that. But with the whole world tracking the Lindbergh's every move, he couldn't just send Charlie away. Everybody knew he existed. The whole world was watching them. Um, So he couldn't get rid of him without people finding out why he'd done it. So there had to be a cover story, right, to hide the fact that he'd sent Charlie away because he was disabled. Charlie was almost two years old when he died, but there are no public photos of him past about the age of one. Is that because his disability became more visible as he grew? Again, it's just one of many theories, but it's the one that sounds the most plausible to me. Think it sounds too far-fetched? Well, 
Let me tell you about something else that Charles Lindbergh did in support of the eugenics movement. Under the assumed name Carew Kent, he fathered at least seven children with at least three women in Germany in the 1950s. Two of the women were even sisters. Was he just a cad that enjoyed women? Maybe, but siring children here, there, and everywhere purposely certainly suggests that it was done as a way to create more perfect specimens like him all over the world. So this was secret. Like, nobody knew this about Charles Lindbergh until 2003, so fairly recently and long after he died. Uh, one of his daughters from one of these women came forward and was basically like, look, there's a whole city full of children that belong to Charles Lindbergh. Test my shit. So they all got DNA tested and they matched seven children. But these are just the ones that came forward. You know, he had sworn them all to secrecy, threatened them, begged them not to tell, all of that. So who knows how many more there might have been out there that actually honored that and never said anything. You could be related to Charles Lindbergh. I could be related to Charles Lindbergh. I really hope I'm not, though. He was a fuck. So Charles Lindbergh had at least 13 children with four different women, all while he was married to Anne, who was the mother of less than half of those children, by the way. Only his first child, the imperfect one, met an untimely death. Other theories about what happened to Charles Lindbergh Jr. are these. Bruno Richard Hauptmann was involved but did not act alone and was part of a gang that kidnapped children and extorted their families for money. The baby died accidentally when the latter broke during the kidnapping orchestrated by third parties. The baby was killed intentionally immediately after being abducted because nobody wanted to take care of a toddler for a month while they worked out an elaborate ransom scheme. Charles Lindbergh was involved and intended for his son to be killed. Charles Lindbergh was involved and did not want his son harmed, just taken away before the world found out about his disabilities. Charles Lindbergh took the baby himself with the intention of sending him away, but something went wrong and he accidentally killed him. Charles Lindbergh intentionally murdered his own son and faked the kidnapping to cover it up. Charles Lindbergh accidentally killed Charlie during one of his pranks and faked the kidnapping to cover it up. The New York Mafia kidnapped and killed the baby. Anne's sister Elizabeth killed the baby out of jealousy. So apparently before Charlie and Anne started dating, he was courting her older sister Elizabeth. So one theory was that Elizabeth was so jealous that Anne got to marry Charlie and have his baby that she killed the baby. The theories are all over the place, but I'm sticking with that first one that Charles Lindbergh orchestrated the kidnapping with plans of sending Charlie to an institution, but something went horribly wrong. Did you notice, though, how literally none of the theories are that Bruno Richard Hauptmann acted alone? Yet that's what history has left us with. What do you think happened? With everyone connected to the case now dead, we're likely never going to know the truth. So that's all that's left is speculation. But I do want to leave you with an eerie quote that Charles once gave on the topic of flying. There were times in an airplane when it seemed I had escaped morality to look down on earth like a god. So he already considered himself a god. Is it 
any far stretch to assume that he thought he could play God as well? I don't think so. So it's, you know, it's always cool to tell people about the celebrities that are from your home state, but A, Charles Lindbergh wasn't from Michigan. He was just born here. And two, accomplishments aside, as a human being, he was nothing at all to be proud of. We've already got to claim Ted Nugent and Kid Rock, so let's just let this one go, maybe. Shall we? Okay. And that's the story of the false idol, Charles Lindbergh, who may have been responsible, at least in some capacity, for the crime of the century. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main sources for this episode were the PBS Nova special, Who Killed the Lindbergh Baby?, the website charleslindbergh.com, an article written for Rutgers University's website called Rutgers Historian Offers Theory 80 Years After Crime of the Century, and tons of old newspapers. Now, notice I said tons of old newspapers, not newspapers.com, because, and this takes us back to something that I said way back at the beginning of the episode seven hours ago, uh, the reason that I chose this case. So, Over the fall, I was at a flea market outside with my mask on, keeping my social distance from literally everyone. And at one of, I was looking for books because this was right about the time I was getting ready to open the bookstore. So I found at one of the booths this really weird looking book. It was very clearly very old. It was yellow and it had a drawing of a man on the front that kind of looked like he was dancing and like yelling into a bullhorn. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I could do something fun and crafty with this, maybe. I flip the book open, and inside are these crumbling, yellowed, super fragile pages. It's a personal homemade scrapbook about Charles Lindbergh, right? Like the whole thing, his whole life, his flights, his career, his marriage, And then at the very back, there was a big separate envelope that was full of clippings about the Lindbergh baby. So I guess let's add that to our theory list. Someone in Michigan that was obsessed with Charles Lindbergh and followed every second of his life did that shit. We figure out, let's, I've got it in my house. Let's get it DNA tested, fingerprint tested, send it in to GED match, have Billy Jensen hop on the case because whoever's DNA is on that book, besides mine, because mine's on it now because I've touched it, whoever's DNA is on that book killed the Lindbergh baby. I solved it. Jen out. Anyway, so I got this scrapbook, and I was like, well, this is fucking amazing. I wasn't, again, not really big into the history of Charles Lindbergh, but this was an amazing piece of history. So, of course, I bought that shit. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. My mom wants me to laminate the pages. I'm worried the heat from the laminator, I don't, which I don't have. I don't have a laminator. I should, though. We should. Everyone should have a laminator. Uh, I'm worried that it's going to ruin the pages because they're so fragile. So, in trying to save it, I would actually ruin it. I have no idea what to do with it, but I have it, and I thought, hey, he's from Michigan, right? No, he isn't. He was just born here, but that was kind of where that came into my consciousness as a, I need to cover that someday. I had no idea how wild it would turn out to be or how long this episode would turn out to be. All right, 
Time for some liquid cheese. You don't need it. It's not even good for you. But here it is anyway. Enjoy the shit. In absolutely the most reprehensible fashion possible, I am going to tell you about the time that I was kidnapped in an episode about a tragic kidnapping. This is reason number 7,632 why I'm going to hell. So I was going to change my mind and do a different one, but I just, it was way too coincidental. So I have my list of liquid cheese topics that I'm going to talk about. And then I have, you know, the schedule for the first half of this season of So Dead. And I did not intentionally match these two up. It was just, okay, in episode 65, I'm talking about the kidnap. Not even thinking that episode 65 was about the most infamous kidnapping in the world. So yeah, we're moving full steam ahead, even though this is in incredibly poor taste. So the time I was kidnapped. I was kidnapped in mm, 2004, 2005, fully grown ass woman. I would have been 24, 25 at the time. So I was working nights at Consumers Energy in Lansing in the call center. That's our local utility company. And working nights was fucking terrible. My kids were still very little. So I was up with the kids all day, worked all night. My stomach is hurting now just thinking about it. That's the thing I remember most. Literally not being tired, but my stomach hurting all the time because I was never sleeping. It was terrible. Kudos to anyone who can work overnights and still live a productive life because I was a zombie that whole time. Uh, Yeah, so there was a small crew of us that worked overnights. We took emergency calls only, so we didn't get a lot of calls unless there was like a storm or a catastrophe or something. It was a little bit like being a 911 operator. We heard some crazy shit. Every night was kind of like a slumber party, so... Someone would bring the food, we would bring snacks, someone would rent movies that we would all kind of huddle about and watch while waiting for our phones to ring. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And that night it was my turn to bring the movies. So I stopped at the Hollywood Video, remember video stores? I stopped at the Hollywood Video on MLK and Holmes Road near my house in South Lansing and got a couple movies. I have no idea what they were. Not the important part of the story. Something awesome, I'm sure. And it was dark already. My shift started at like 10, 11. So it was already dark out, nighttime. I walk out by myself from the video store. And as I get in the driver's side of my car, this woman about my age gets in the passenger side, just gets into my fucking car very aggressively in my vehicle with me. And I'm like shocked and terrified, right? Like what's happening? And she's like, I need you to take me home. Bitch, what? I need you to take me home. I said, I am on my way to work. I'm going to work. I can't take you home. I'm sorry. She's like, no, you're going to take me home. Here's my address. Let's go. I mean, there was no question I was taking her home. And she didn't like have a weapon. She didn't threaten me. She just very forcefully told me what I was going to do. And... My dumbass did it. How many 2020s datelines had I watched? I mean, I don't know that the ID channel was really a thing yet. You know, true crime wasn't as big in pop culture as it is now. But I was an OG murderino. I knew that you don't leave the first location 
when someone's trying to kidnap you. You stay there. You fight. You run. You scream. And I do remember looking around the parking lot to see if there was anyone that I thought could help me and there was no one there. But I wasn't that far from the door of the video store. I could have gotten out of my car and run back in. She could have gotten out and fucking stabbed me or shot me. She was close enough to me that if I even started to try to get out of my car, she could have hurt me if she had a weapon. So that's kind of the rationale I used to excuse my actions, which were dumb as fuck. But yeah, so... I took her to this address, which was in a really horrible neighborhood. I was scared the whole time. She didn't talk on the drive. She was just staring straight ahead. She was just this very, like, forceful, angry, dark presence. And I was positive that when we got to where... And I didn't have a cell phone. I mean, they existed, but not everybody had them back then, and I didn't have one. Nothing I could do. I was trapped. I was stuck, right? Just stuck. And so, I i mean, I guess I could have, like, driven to a police station, right? Driven home. My house was right around the corner, but my kids were there, so I didn't want to get them involved in whatever was going on. Driven to my house, though, where my husband was at the time, and he, I don't know what he would have done, probably nothing. But just, you know, there were so many things I could have done. And what I did instead was drive this bitch to her fucking house. And... We pulled in the driveway of this rundown house that honestly looked abandoned in this terrible neighborhood all the way across town. It was like 10, 15 minute drive to get there. And my heart is pounding because I'm positive that there's someone waiting, that as she's gonna getting out of the car, someone's going to come out and pull me out of the car, or she's going to pull out a weapon and she's going to force me out of my car. I just was... I was like the sacrificial lamb. I had nothing. I had no way to protect myself, no way to signal for help at this point as I'm sitting in this driveway in this crazy, abandoned neighborhood with nobody anywhere in the pitch black, just nothing, nothing. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. What happened was she got out of the car, she shut the door, And she went in her house and I pulled out of that driveway so fucking fast and I drove to work. And once I was inside the building and around other people, I lost my shit. I was shaking and crying and I'm still mad at myself about it almost 20 years later because I did everything wrong. Everything wrong. So (laughs) that's my story of the time I was kidnapped as a grown ass woman. What about you? I mean, I'm sure sure none of you have been kidnapped, at least I hope not. But tell me about a time that you found yourself in a situation that was either very possibly unsafe or definitely unsafe, and you just did all the wrong things despite your lifetime of learning what not to do by watching true crime. I'll go ahead and do a liquid cheese post in the Sodad Facebook discussion group so you can share your stories. And that's it for today. That sounded really annoying. I'm sorry, but I'm going to remind you here that this is the second time I'm recording this episode. Um, So yeah, that's it. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Sodad wherever you listen. And make sure you're following the Sodad Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you would like to support the show financially, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash so dead podcast. 
Lots of fun stuff is going on there. And there's also a So Dead podcast discussion group on Facebook that's pretty cool. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, don't get kidnapped, and keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks.